All right, church, if you will open up in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 110. Psalm chapter 110 is our text for today. We're going to focus our attention today on the first three verses, but I want to read the entire psalm, seven verses long. I want to read all of this psalm, and then we'll focus our attention on the first three verses. The title of our message is Exalting Christ, Jesus the Divine King. Exalting Christ. Jesus, the divine King. Psalm chapter 110. We want to hear from the Lord. The most important words that are spoken this morning are the words that I'm about to speak and you're about to read as we hear from God. This is the word of God, church. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Church, this is the word of the Lord. You're probably familiar with this day in the life of Jesus and his disciples that we read about in the New Testament. Jesus was with his disciples and he asked them perhaps the most important question that anyone has ever been asked and anyone could be asked. He said, who do you say that I am? It was a question that Jesus posed to his disciples. He said, who do you say that I am? Well, today I want us to ask the same question. I want to ask you, everyone in this room, men, women, young people, boys, girls, moms, dads, grandparents, children, sinners and saints. If you can hear my voice, I want to ask you this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Some people think that Jesus was a, a person, a man of historical importance. Some people believe that Jesus was a well-versed teacher. Some people believe that Jesus was a unique prophet of God. And if you believe that he was those things, then you're right. He, he was those things. However, if that's all that you believe Jesus is, then you are mistaken. You're wrong. I want, to, I want you to know today that Jesus is more than all of those things. He's not less than those things, but he is more than those things. He is the King of Kings. And He is the Lord of Lords. He is the exalted Lord of Heaven. He is the righteous ruler of the universe. Church, if I could, if I could have you walk out of here with one thought in your mind today, it would be this. Only Jesus sits on the throne of Heaven, and so only Jesus should sit on the throne of our hearts. Only Jesus sits on the throne of Heaven, and so only Jesus should sit on the throne of our hearts. You see, I'm afraid that many of us here would say that Jesus is our King, but our manner of living might betray us to be liars. We say that Jesus is our Lord, but how often do we bow to Him in the way that we live our lives? Instead, our lives are often consumed with the things of this world. I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. But we bow to our jobs. We bow to our hobbies. 
We bow to earthly relationships. We bow to entertainment. We bow to peer pressure. We bow to money. We bow to sexual longings. We bow to earthly pleasure. We bow to physical health. We bow to positions of power. We bow to political victory. We bow to personal appearance. We bow to the opinion of others. We bow to comfort. We bow to a desire to have a problem-free life. We bow to alcohol. We bow to drugs. We bow to social media. We bow to popularity. We could just keep the list going on and on. Not all of those things are inherently wrong or evil. Some of them are. But all of them are evil when they sit on the throne of our hearts. When they become our king. Friends, we don't have a problem bowing to a king. We have a problem choosing the right king. We don't have a problem of refusing to submit to someone or something. We have a problem with who or what it is that we allow to ascend the throne of our hearts and have dominion over our lives. I believe that you can tell who or what a man exalts in his life by looking at who or what he bows in submission to. My prayer today and for the next couple of weeks is that as we examine Psalm chapter 110, God will give us a renewed vision of who Jesus is and that the result will be us exalting Christ, not only just here in this place today or when we gather for worship, but all the days of our lives in every area of our lives. Now, we've been looking at the great doctrines of the Christian faith from the viewpoint of the book of Psalms. And we've learned about the doctrine of revelation and the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin. Now, today we turn our attention to the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Christ. I've been excited to get to the doctrine of Christ. Not that all the other doctrines aren't important, but I love talking about Jesus. Now, as I've been preparing this message, um, studying Psalm chapter 110, here's, here's the thought that has been in my mind. I have bitten off more than I can chew. <laughs> That's the thought that has been in my mind. And I don't say that because this psalm is really long. In fact, this psalm is really short in length, but it seems to be bottomless in its depth. I mean, it's like it's like going into a mine and, and looking for uh, for hidden treasures, for gems and jewels and, and gold. And you just keep going deeper and deeper. And the further you go, the more you find. That's what I, I feel like is the case with Psalm chapter 110. Psalm chapter 110 is quoted in the New Testament more often than any other psalm. And it sits at the height of what we call the Messianic Psalms. While all the psalms ultimately point us to Jesus, just like all of Scripture does, there are some psalms which very specifically are prophecies of the coming Messiah. And yet they all, except for Psalm chapter 110, I would argue, they, all of those messianic psalms include a mixture of words where some of the psalm is about King David or another earthly king, and some of the psalm is about the coming Messiah king. It's kind of a mixture, except for Psalm 110. Psalm 110, I believe, stands alone in that the entire psalm can only be rightly understood in terms of a coming king who is greater than any earthly king could ever be. We see the uniqueness of the psalm in two ways. First, neither David nor any other earthly king could possibly fulfill the exalted description of the king spoken of in Psalm chapter 110. There's just no way. There's no way a, a mere human can, can be the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 110. 
But second, David himself, who writes this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us in the opening line, you can look there in verse 1, he tells us in the opening line of the psalm that this song is not about him at all, but about one whom he himself calls Lord or King or Master. David is talking not about himself, he's talking about another king. I say all that to say this, Psalm chapter 110, church, is about Jesus. And so our focus as we study this psalm will be Jesus. Now, I believe Psalm chapter 110 provides us with three distinct pictures of Jesus, which teach us that he alone is the exalted king and then which should lead us to surrender our lives to his kingship. Three pictures of Jesus and then as a result, three responses that we are to have. Now, because of the weightiness of the psalm, we are only going to look today at the first Picture and response. So we're going to direct our attention to verses 1 through 3. Church, the first picture and appropriate response we see in Psalm chapter 110 is this. Jesus is the divine king. There's the picture. So submit to his rule. There's the response. Jesus is the divine king. So submit to his rule. Say it one more time. Jesus is the divine king. So submit to his rule. The first picture we have of Jesus in this psalm is that of a divine king, the divine king. David begins this way in verse one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this psalm opens up like a baseball game where the leadoff hitter just knocks a home run out of the park right up. First one up to bat or like a like a football game where opening kickoff. The, 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 the guy catches it and he just runs it back for a touchdown, right? And you just go, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. What just happened? You gotta sit there and process that. It was no really warm up. It was just all of a sudden you're hit right in the face with this amazing truth. We must examine this verse carefully to understand the gravity of what David has just said. Now notice in your, in your Bible, the first Lord that you see where he says, the Lord, that is the name of God, Yahweh. And I've said this before, I'll, I'll say it again in case you're unsure, because it, is, it really matters in this passage of Scripture. You, in your Bible, that word Lord should be in all capital letters. And, and that's to help us know that really what's there in the Hebrew is God's name, Yahweh. But the Jews didn't want to take God's name in vain, and so they said, well, we're just not even going to say His name. Instead, we'll say the word Lord. But actually, what's written there is Yahweh. It's God's name, the title of God that He revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, the second Lord, the second Lord is in capital L with lowercase letters, and that's actually the word in Hebrew for Lord. Okay, so you have Yahweh, who they're calling, the Hebrews would call Lord, and then you have the word Lord, which means master or king. And then we have that pronoun my, which is referring to David. I think we should be struck by at least four things in the opening line. First, we are struck by the fact that there are two Lords. Right. The Lord said to my Lord, not the Lord said to himself. It's not what it says. It says the Lord said to my Lord. Yahweh said to my Lord. Second, we're struck by the fact that David, the king, calls one of them my Lord. But he just calls one of them my Lord. Well, what is he talking about here? Plus, he's the king. So how can the king call someone Lord? Third, we're struck by the fact that the one whom David calls my Lord is not the one whom David refers to as Yahweh or God. So he's saying, it's like he's saying, God says to my Lord, 
You see that? You see what's going on here? I mean, this is this will make make your head hurt. All right, if you're not careful, this is deep, deep stuff that David is saying. Fourth, we're struck by the fact that Yahweh God exalts the one whom David calls Lord to a position of world dominance, a position which seems could be held only by Yahweh. The Lord Yahweh, most high God, says to my Lord, this other Lord over here, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The only person that should should be domineering over his enemies is Yahweh, God. And yet he says to this other one, you sit at my right hand. And David calls that one Lord. Apparently, what David is saying is this. David believes there is a king greater than himself who is equal to Yahweh, God, and yet distinct from Yahweh, God. And this king is one to whom David can submit his life without being found guilty of bowing to someone other than God. Now, if that makes your head spin, don't worry. My head has been spinning all week trying to wrap my mind around this and figure out how to not only understand it for myself, but put it in words to hopefully help explain it accurately to you. This is one of the most profound verses in all of the Bible. In fact, Jesus used this exact verse to stump the teachers of the law in his day. You see, they had been following him around trying to ask him hard questions in order to get him to stumble and say something wrong. Now, of course, they always left as the fools. They never got Jesus to stumble. They never got him to say something wrong. They never stumped Jesus. But finally, Jesus turns the tables on them and he says, well, you want to you want to play a game where we ask questions? I'll ask you a question. Right? They should have ran right then. Okay, they couldn't ask Jesus a question that would stump him. They should have known whatever question he asked. They were not going to get right. So in Matthew, chapter 22, verses 41 through 46, we find this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Now, that Christ, that means the Messiah, the one that was promised in the Old Testament. Jesus says, whose son is he? There's the question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Which is the right answer. Okay, that's right. But Jesus isn't done. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him, that's the Messiah, the Christ, Lord? So, who, who, who is the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, he's David's son. Right? I mean, that's what the Old Testament prophesied. He would come from the lineage of David. He's David's son. Jesus said, well, how then is David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means David was right in saying this, how does David call him Lord? And then, you know what he does? He quotes Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. Jesus tells the Pharisees, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus goes on. He says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. I love the rest of it. I got to read it. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Right? They're like, all right, we're done. All right, Jesus got us. We're not asking him any more questions because he's going to ask us some hard questions. And we we don't understand. You see, the Pharisees rightly believed that this verse was referring to the coming Messiah. They, they knew Psalm 110 verse 1, 
And they knew that it was talking about the Messiah. They knew that the Lord said to my Lord, that that my Lord that David was referring to was the coming Messiah. And they were right in that. And they rightly believed the Messiah would be born a son of David. He would be a descendant of David. But what they failed to see is that the Messiah would be greater than just a son of David. Not only that, he would be greater than David himself. In fact, he would be greater than any human who has ever walked the face of the earth. Let's see if we can do a little better than the Pharisees. Let's see if we can answer this question. How can David call his son Lord? I think the answer is this. By recognizing that his son, David's son, who would come after him, would be the fulfillment of God's messianic promises. And that that one had actually existed before him and was not only a man, but was God. That's how we make sense of it. Yes, he was his son. The Messiah was going to be the son, a descendant of David. But that wasn't when he would start existing. He would have existed long before. And he wouldn't just be a man. He would be God. And that's how David can say, the Lord, Yahweh God, said to my Lord, the one that I am bowing in submission to. Talk about head spinning. (laughs) Now, I don't know how much David himself understood concerning the mystery of God's plan of salvation. We are 2,000 years on the other side of the, the coming of Jesus Christ. We have the entire written revelation of God. David didn't have the New Testament. didn't even have all of the Old Testament. Okay? And so we have more to to go off of. So I don't know exactly how much David understood about God's plan of salvation, that glorious plan in which he would send his fully divine son to take human form in order to be the promised Messiah. But David understood enough to know that the one who was coming after him, the king who would deliver God's people and destroy God's enemies, was worthy of his submission and worthy of all the rights and privileges afforded to one who is fully equal to God. You have the king of Israel saying, my Lord. David was prophetically saying that the son to come from him was really Lord over him. What an incredible statement. Now, I want us to go back to Jesus and the Pharisees for just a moment. No, Jesus was asking the Pharisees a question about how to interpret Psalm chapter 110. He was really making a statement as to who he was. That's the statement that kind of the, the, the veiled statement behind his question. He wasn't just trying to stump the Pharisees. He was making a declaration about who he was. He, Jesus, was the rightful heir to the throne of God. He, Jesus, was the one Yahweh was going to exalt at his right hand. He, Jesus, was the one who would defeat his enemies by the will of the sovereign God of the universe. He, Jesus, was and is and forever will be God. Church, Jesus is the divine king. He is on the throne of heaven. And so my question for us today is, is he on the throne of our hearts? It's an important question. Now, I want us to look at verses two and three, and then we're going to come back to verse one at the end. Okay, verses two and three give us two ways in which his divine kingship is displayed. Two ways his divine kingship is is displayed. First, Jesus' divine kingship is displayed through his ability to rule over his enemies. Jesus is able to rule over his enemies. That's one way that his divine kingship is portrayed here. 
verse 2 says, The Lord, now we're back to capital letters, Yahweh, God, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So, so talking about the king, talking about the Lord, the Messiah, Yahweh, God, sends forth from Zion your, the king's mighty scepter, and says, rule in the midst of your enemies. God is telling this Lord, this Messiah, to rule over his enemies. Here and in verse 3, David seems to be speaking to the divine king. He says that Yahweh God ascending forth from Zion. When you hear the word Zion, think, think God's place. Alright, God's dwelling place. A scepter which belongs to the one whom David calls my Lord. Now let me ask you a question. You know what a scepter is, right? Who, who holds the scepter? The king, right? That's the only person who's allowed to hold the scepter. This is the king. It only belongs in the king's hand. And this scepter, this authority to rule, is not just any scepter. It is being sent forth from God. Thus, this one whom we have said is Jesus is a divine ruler. He rules in the midst of his enemies with the authority of God, which means his enemies do not stand a chance. God would never hand the scepter over to anyone other than God. God is jealous for his glory. He will give his glory to no other, the prophet Isaiah says. And so if he's going to hand the scepter to anyone, he's only going to hand it to himself. He's going to hand it to one who is God. And so we see that this ruler, this king, this Jesus is the divine king. He is fully God. He is able to rule over his enemies. And then secondly, the second way that we see his kingship displayed is in verse 3. And we see this, that Jesus is able to rally his troops for battle. He's able to rule over his enemies and he's able to rally his troops for battle. Verse 3 is a very interesting verse. Verse 3 says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, this verse is actually very difficult to translate and understand in the Hebrew. Some verses are just like that, okay? But that doesn't mean that the meaning is unclear. Let's look carefully at it for a moment. Look at verse 3. The words translated offer themselves freely or volunteer themselves, depending on your translation. That word is the word that's used in the Levitical law to refer to a free will offering. If you know anything about the Levitical law, you know there are all sorts of offerings. There's sin offerings, there's guilt offerings, there's peace offerings, there's wave offerings, there's free will offerings. There's all sorts of offerings that people could give. But what sets the free will will offering apart from the rest is that the rest were offerings they had to give. They had sinned. They had to bring a guilt offering. They had sinned. They had to bring a sin offering. They had to bring these different type of offerings. But the free will offering was one that they could bring if they wanted to. It was an offering where after they had brought the rest of their offerings, which they had to bring, they then said, you know what? I love Yahweh God so much. I'm so thankful for the way that He has delivered me and my people out of Egypt and out of our out of the 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 the, the grasp of slavery there that I, I want to give even more. God's not necessarily telling me I have to do this, but I have to do this. There's something in me that just must give God my all. That's what a free will offering is. And that is the same word that's used to refer to how 
This army is conscripted. They gladly volunteer, volunteer themselves to serve in the army of this king. You say, well, how do you know we're talking about an army here? Well, the second line on the day of your power is a reference to marching into battle. You could even translate it to march into battle. Okay, on the day of your power, on the day that you walk into battle and you claim the victory. And then notice the last phrase. It seems to be referring to strength which endures. Strength which endures. Youth, the word youth is often used in Scripture to refer to being strong. That the strength of youthfulness. Your strength hasn't, hasn't faded with time yet. It's, the, it's that prime of your life. You're as strong as you're ever going to be. Kind of thought. And then I want you to think about the dew. As the dew gets older throughout the morning, what happens? It disappears. But if you think about dew being young, it's, that's as, that's as, put it this way, that's as wet as the dew is going to be. Okay? And so it's at the, the height of its wetness, or youth, at the height of its strength, that's how this army is described, except it's always like that. Unlike an army whose strength disappears, the army of this divine king will remain like the youthful or fresh dew. That is, their strength will not fade. This king's army is filled with people who are willing to sacrifice themselves for the cause of the king and who are continually strong such that they will not be overcome, but will conquer as their king conquers. Two New Testament verses come to mind as we consider this army of the Lord as it's described here in verse 3. The first verse is this, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, in which Christians are commanded to, quote, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And this comes after Paul spends 11 chapters explaining that we're not saved by our good works. We don't offer ourselves to God so that he will save us. This is chapter 12 in Romans, verse 1. Now that you've been saved, in light of all that God has done for you, offer yourselves to God willingly as a sacrifice, as a living act of worship. And the second New Testament verse that comes to mind is Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Revelation 12, verse 11, which says of God's people, and they have conquered him, talking about Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Victory for the people of God. Church, if Jesus is our King, if Jesus is on the throne of our hearts, if Jesus is exalted in our lives, then we will willingly offer up ourselves in humble service to King Jesus to do battle against evil by living holy lives regardless of the cost that we must endure. And we will submit to Him as King not to earn His love and favor, but because He has already loved us and shown us His favor by delivering us from Satan while we were still sinners. For though we may die physically while serving in the army of Christ, we don't die to earn our victory because it's not our blood but our King's blood, which conquers the enemy. So let me ask you, are you submitting to Jesus' rule as the divine King? Are you submitting to Jesus' rule? If you're not submitting to His rule, if you're not a member of His army, then according to this, you're on the other side. You're on the other side of the battlefield. You are against Him. You are His enemy. Verse 3 implies what verse 1 and verse 2 state very clearly. Jesus has enemies. 
Not everyone is on Jesus' side. Not everyone lives in submission to King Jesus. But what about you? Which army do you belong to? To which ruler do you belong? The king of heaven or the serpent of hell? You see, Satan was the first to ever rebel against the authority of God. And then he tempted the first humans to rebel as well. And we know what happened. They did. They rebelled. But God promised to send a man born of woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. And that man came and his name was Jesus and he paid the price for our sin and he defeated death by rising from the grave. He dealt a wound to the serpent, a wound which that serpent will not recover from. And one day King Jesus will cast that ancient serpent into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever according to Revelation chapter 20. But that's not the whole story. Scripture goes on to say that the devil won't be alone there. For everyone who belongs to Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire with him. Listen, church, if you don't belong to those who have submitted to the rule of Jesus, then you belong to the company of Satan and will follow him, not in the victory march of heaven, but in the walk of shame into hell. If you fail to submit your life to Jesus in this life, according to Psalm chapter 110, you will one day find yourself forced into submission to him with his foot on your neck. Say, where do you see that in verse 1? I said we would come back to verse 1 at the end. I want to do that now. You notice that phrase? Until I make your enemies your footstool. Until I make your enemies your footstool. What in the world does that mean? Well, in Joshua chapter 10, Joshua, the human commander of the Lord's army, defeats Five kings of the Amorites. And he hears that they're hiding out in a cave. They know they've been defeated. They've locked themselves up in a cave. And so he goes and sends and has them brought to him. So you got to picture this. Joshua, he is the victor. Okay, He's the commander of the Lord's army. They have won five defeated kings in front of him. And Joshua tells his chief men who had gone to war with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And the text says, then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. Church, that's what it means to be a footstool. That's what it means to be a footstool of the conquering king. You might be tempted to think, well, I don't mind just being a footstool in heaven. If that means I can live however I want to live now, I mean, I don't need the biggest mansion. I'll leave that for those who are really committed Christians. I think I would just rather give some lip service to Jesus, go to church every once in a while, and not do anything really, really bad. And I'll still get in. I might just be a footstool, but hey, at least I'll be there. Friend, if that's what you think, you're gravely mistaken. You see, to be a footstool of Jesus doesn't mean you get to enjoy a place at the foot of His throne. It means you get crushed under the weight of His wrath. The truth is that you either submit to the rule of the King of Kings now, fully surrendering your life to service to King Jesus and therefore becoming a conqueror with Him, or you reject Jesus as the King of your life now, either by outright denial of Him, of His Lordship, or by just pretending that He is your Lord, and therefore become a footstool under Him, being conquered by Him, experiencing His wrath, paying the price for your sin against Him. So I want to ask you again, who do you say that Jesus is? What if I asked your wife, 
Who does your husband believe Jesus is? Or if I ask your husband, who's your wife believe Jesus is? What if I ask your children, who does your mom and dad believe Jesus to be? Students, what if I ask your classmates or teammates or friends, who does, insert your name, believe Jesus is? What if I ask your coworkers, who does, insert your name, believe Jesus is? What if I ask your neighbors, who does, insert your name, believe Jesus is? Would the answer be, oh, my husband, my wife, my mom, my dad, my coworker, my classmate, my teammate, my friend, my neighbor, believes that Jesus is the true King because he or she is always living to bring glory and honor to King, this King Jesus. Oh, insert your name, must think that Jesus is the most important person in the world because what Jesus says goes in, insert your name, life. Exalting Jesus means more than just singing a song about Him, though that is part of exalting Him. Exalting Jesus must be more than just saying with our lips that Jesus is worthy of our lives. Exalting Jesus means submitting every area of our lives to His Lordship. You see, if we really believe that Jesus is the divine King of the world, then we, well, we'll obey Him. (laughs) We'll do what He says. We'll bring every area of our life into submission under His authority. Unfortunately, we're really good at saying one thing and living another. It's true. You know, the people around us often know us better than we know ourselves. Because we're really good at deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're living how we're supposed to be living. Because we say, oh yeah, Jesus is King of my life. But those around us can see how we live and the choices that we make. So sometimes it might be good to think at it from their perspective. Or perhaps even to ask them. Perhaps today you realize that Jesus is not on the throne of your heart. Well, guess what? You're not alone. If you realize today that Jesus is not on the throne of your heart, you're not alone. The truth is that none of us submit to His rule. We don't. But church, thankfully, Jesus is not just a King who rules. He is also a Savior who saves. Amen? He is not just a king who rules. He is also a savior who saves. Now, we're going to look at another picture of Jesus next week, which brings this truth to light in a most glorious way. But I want to summarize it by saying this. Left to ourselves, you and I will never submit to Jesus as king. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ, that king of kings, died for us. The wondrous mystery of the gospel is that the king left heaven to become a man, to live in perfect obedience to God and to suffer and die for sin in your place so that your rebellion, my rebellion against God could be forgiven so that we could be given a new heart of flesh which delights in submitting to Jesus as king. You see, the problem which led the Pharisees to misunderstand Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, and therefore to reject Jesus as king was not that they were dull of mind, but that they were hard of heart. They didn't need to have their brains expanded. They needed to have their hearts softened. And the one who asked them the question which stumped their minds was also the one who had the power to transform the hearts of any and all who would believe in Him for salvation. 
Submission to Jesus as the divine king means first and foremost that you believe that Jesus is the son of God who came and died on the cross for your sins and who rescues you through his death and resurrection. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that God's transforming grace flows into our lives. You must believe in Jesus for salvation. And then, once you are no longer an enemy of God, but then are a member of God's army, you then offer every single part of your life as an offering of praise and service to Jesus, your King. You serve Him faithfully with all that you have and with all that you are. You let Him reign over your time and over your talents, over your money and job and family and relationships and hobbies. You show the world that Jesus is your King by pursuing holiness and running from sinfulness. And you tell the world that Jesus is King by going to the lost and declaring the good news that the King of Kings died for them. That He lives again and that He can transform their rebellious hearts into submissive hearts just like He did yours. Some of you may have come into this place today having never surrendered to Jesus. Today, Let me just ask you, will you surrender to Him by trusting in Him to save you from your sin? Others of us who have believed in Jesus for salvation, we've surrendered to His Lordship, but it may be the case that we've let our guard down and other people or things are slowly creeping up the steps of the throne of our hearts. They're ascending to that place that belongs only to Jesus. If that's you today, you probably know it. (laughs) Because the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now. And what you need to do is you need to take your sin to God and you need to confess it to Him. You need to say, God, I know that You've saved me, but I've been letting my job, my family, my money, my hobbies, my appearance in the eyes of the world, my relationship, um, uh, or my desire for relationship, my pride, my lust, my desire for comfort, my you fill in the blank with whatever it is for you. I've been letting it creep up into the throne of my heart. And I'm sorry, God. Please help me to submit to Jesus in that area of my life, along with all the other areas. Please, God, by Your grace, put Jesus back on the throne of my heart. And then once you've done that, it's possible that you may need to apologize to someone else too, not just to God. You see, often when we let something other than Jesus rule our hearts, we end up hurting other people. If that's true in your situation, then maybe you need to find a time after you've confessed to God to go to maybe a person that you've hurt and confess to them as well and say, I've been letting something else rule my heart instead of Jesus, and I'm sorry. To all of this, we might be tempted to say, is it worth it? Because our pride rears up and we say, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Is it worth it? Well, let me answer that question with a better question. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? But of course, your answer to that question depends upon who you believe Jesus to be. And I think we've seen in the first part of Psalm chapter 110 that Jesus is worth it, church, because he is the divine king. Church, if God has exalted Jesus, that's what happens in verse one. If God has exalted Jesus, then how dare we be found guilty of exalting anyone or anything other than Christ? Jesus is the divine King. God has exalted Him. Will He find us exalting Jesus as well? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in this moment, would You search our hearts and see if there be any evil way in us. 
Lord, if there's someone here today whose heart has never had Jesus sitting upon it, Father, they have never surrendered to Christ. They have never trusted in the blood of Jesus shed on Calvary's cross. Father, I pray that today you would soften their hearts by your grace and you would draw them into a relationship with you. I pray that they would choose to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Father, for any of us here today who have trusted in Jesus, we have been saved by the blood of Christ. And yet we know that maybe even over this past week, maybe over the past month, maybe over the past who knows how many years, we've let something creep up the throne of our hearts. Father, would we be humble? Will we confess that to you? If we need to confess to somebody else, I pray that we would do that as well. Father, my desire for myself and my desire for everyone here is that Jesus, who has the rightful place at your right hand, would also have the rightful place on the throne of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.